listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM, DM, and whatever he may be, McGill. And it is episode 180, being recorded on the 7th of February, 2024. McGill, I hear you got some, some wild stuff for me. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's February, and uh, I found out last year that apparently February is Zine RPG Month. So just an online celebration uh, that is showcased in a bunch of different places. I know that uh, Kickstarter and Backerkit, which is a crowdfunding platform, they both have a, a zine, I think it's z- hashtag ZineQuest, Um if you're making a, a zine RPG, an RPG in zine form, you can take part in the celebration with that hashtag. And uh, then sites like Dicebreaker, which I've referenced in the past, uh, it's a place where I get a lot of my RPG news. They showcase the best of zine RPG month. And so uh, on my segment of the show, I'm going to be talking about a few. We'll see how many I get to. I, I have... Uh, a whole bunch of them that I'm going to cover uh, probably throughout the course of February. But uh, we'll see how many of them I do. I imagine I'll cover like three or maybe four of them. Uh, and these all sound pretty fun to me. So I, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on their crowdfunding campaigns too. All right. Interesting. Um, what have you got? You got more Coyotes Aegis. Are we still on the water? Nope, we're getting off the water. It's the second theater, McGill. Um, Ooh, is it a new environment? Do I get to guess what environment? We we did water. I guess out of three theaters, which do you think the next will be? Are they, there, are they all different environments? Like, you know, there's like a water one, and then there's one where, they, where the players fly. Is it like that kind yes. of thing? Yes. Okay, uh, I bet the flying one's next. Yes, you are correct. Um, though, and is the third one, it must be land-based. Is it like all ground-based combat? Yeah, that's the one. Um, though after our previous naval battle, you might expect this to be then a big aerial battle, but that is, that is not the case. Um, Mm. as I had foreshadowed when, when we did the briefing back a number of episodes ago now, um, the uh the thing here so they are going to get picked up from the shore by fighters which are then just going to drop them off at a specific point where they are then going to mount cloakers and this is actually um this is something from the module again blood above blood below the uh ddep the season three epic of the adventurers league and uh so there is the, the the sort of second portion that you might find yourself playing in in that group. Uh, you know, as I explained, those epics, they're divided into groups at the convention. And so one set of groups would have been playing the uh, naval battle, which, as I said before, is actually set in a big coliseum in the original context of the module. Mm-hmm. Um, so some, one group would be attempting to, to win that and, uh, you know, defeat the demon that existed on that front. 
But then another group would be sent uh, undercover into the Underdark uh, flying up on the backs of cloakers. And so this is where we pick up is um, the group is then going to be mounting cloakers and then descending into the Underdark to meet up with uh, drow allies uh, to uh, sort of infiltrate the uh, the bounds of the mantle uh, via uh, Underdark passages. I'm already intrigued because I would have expected the cloakers to like grab onto their backs. Not that the players would ride the cloakers, but almost like the cloakers would ride the players. They're well, cloakers. <laughs> I feel like I often forget that cloakers are large sized creatures. Like they are big enough that you can ride. Oh yeah, it's not it's it's the it's the like dynamic that uh, that surprises me more than uh the ability to ride them. Yeah, but it's like yeah, you're riding flying manta rays. It's it's crazy. Um <clears throat> shall we just get into that? Unless there's anything else you want to mention off the top. Not particularly, I don't think. Been been playing any RPGs? I've been playing Baldur's Gate. Still uh, fun. Yeah, uh I I not not me, no. Uh haven't even been playing uh Pathfinder Kingmaker. I just I, I found it kind of lost me. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that one. Uh and it feels like it's been twice now, honestly, but mm, yeah. Uh I don't know. It's just it takes so long to get to the point. Well, time for a new one. Yeah. I don't know. It's. I guess I just feel kind of burnt out on that one. Um. So, but I mean, I I've been playing great RPGs. I've been playing Wicked Ones. Oh yeah, that's so much fun. fun. Um, actually, my my Coyotes Aegis in real time is supposed to come back tomorrow tomorrow and so that means you know who's playing oh yeah actually it's gonna be uh me my brother spencer and Chantel. wow right so, on so gents player is gonna be back uh spencer is in the group uh he'd been in the group for most of the final act all of the final act um technically he comes in a bit into this act um but you'll see how that works out um yeah so i'm supposed to come back to this tomorrow i'm uh, that that's kind of daunting um though it's been interesting you know it's funny uh i i i had been running world of darkness set in iceland uh this game with the two players, my friends Raffi and Tyler. Raffi is playing a detective who became a vampire, and Tyler is playing a, a hacker who became a mage. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking that, you know, once the hiatus ends, I go back to D&D &D and I just sort of, you know, put the World of Darkness game on ice. 
it's hard to do it. They're enjoying it so much. And, uh, <laughs> but like, there's just no end in sight. Like there's such a, I've woven such a tapestry. There's so many characters. Um, and it's what, like, what's the problem? You don't feel like you can run two campaigns at once. That doesn't sound like you. I guess I could, but oh boy, it's yeah. That, why not? I'm running like three, I guess. I'm running. I'm doing one campaign twice, one campaign with two different groups, and then I'm also running wicked ones. Yeah, I guess. I guess I could just do two games. Oh man. <laughs> You certainly don't have to. Run I'm just. Games, I guess I'm surprised. Two games. Yeah. This all sounds par for the course for you, Tom. Yet. I'm playing in one game. I'm playing in Wicked Ones, but I'm going to be playing in two games when Spencer's game starts up again. This all sounds par for the course. I guess I just feel kind of tired. Oh well, I mean, at the same time, you can take a break. Yeah, but at at the same time, I like I I don't want to I I don't want to tell the guys it's over. <laughs> so just put it on ice for a bit. So you got really busy. You need a bit of you need a bit of a break from it. We'll come back in a month or two. I don't know. Now I'm starting to hear your side of things, where it's like, oh, maybe it's not that bad, and uh, I should just keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm certainly not trying to pressure you to do that. It's just from what I know of you, running multiple games does not sound like a stretch at all. And I guess it does, like, continuously scratch my itch to play World of Darkness. Yeah. So. If you're enjoying it and you feel like you got the the mental space and the energy for it, why not? Why not? What, what would you do instead? Uh... And, and that thing that you would do instead... Would you enjoy it more than running World of Darkness? That's the question. Mm. Yeah, I guess I don't have an excuse. <laughs> well, I mean, just being burnt out is is a fine excuse. World of Darkness, man, the the main quest right now is that detective vampire. He's got to figure out the... Do you know in Vampire there's this concept of Elysium? Do you know what that means? Um no. In that's Vampire, a cryptocurrency, right? No. It, that's Ethereum. In in, uh, <laughs> in Vampire, Elysium is like the neutral ground where vampires can come together and there's like no fighting. You know, I, I sort of whenever Right. Like the uh, space station. The president's the president's going away pretty soon because my my sister's moving out. Uh, yeah, it's a real shame. I'm gonna miss that little furry guy. Uh, but um, he's always trying to tackle Fatty Goo Goo, uh, my other sister's cat, and they're fighting. And I'll 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 say to them, "No fighting, no fighting." But now that he's going away, there's gonna be no fighting. And anyways, in Elysium, there's no fighting. And uh, <laughs> I was wondering what, what was happening there, where you were going with all that. Yeah, in Elysium, there's no fighting. And uh, I mean, you can 
socially throw down, but you can't like there's a, it's all it's a lot of court, you know, uh intrigue, that sort of thing. Um and like it's a it's also sort of like a, a a position in the vampire society is like the master of Elysium, like whoever controls that space. And um so my game covers it's about like the whole Icelandic the whole vampiric domain of Iceland, the whole country. And so there's like 50 vampires or something like that, that are all sort of vying for control. And, uh, there's like the prince who's in charge, but this new guy, uh, Rafi's character, um, he's been tasked with finding, uh, and designating a new Elysium. He's got to get one that makes everyone happy. But the real, the real motive behind this is because he doesn't know all the vampires in Iceland. And if he can establish an Elysium, he can bring them all together. And anybody who doesn't show up looks suspect because the thing is somebody's going against the prince and they got to figure out who. Um, meanwhile, the mage, he recently went on an expedition with some other mages to check out a magical node and on a, on a glacier, Vatnia's yokel, and uh, they found a research station, uh, a Chinese research outpost, but everybody had frozen to death, and it looks like maybe a mage froze them to death. A mage of the type that is the same type as the mage that Tyler is playing. See, I would have immediately assumed it was Sub-Zero showing up and assassinating people again. But maybe that's just my love of Mortal Kombat shining through. What? Do you think my game would have Sub-Zero in it? I think you're... I, oh, you mean like some sort of martial arts mage that does ice magic, Tom? Oh, well, that it could be. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> like... I, I just... I'm just like, wait, you think I'm just going to throw Sub-Zero in there? You think I'm no. just going to put the Predator in there? You know what I had recently? Oh, they don't know what... They don't know it was this, but a werefish. It was the predator. No, it was a werefish. A werefish? Like a person who turns into a monstrous fish? It's like a person who turns into like a creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, nice. <laughs> he, he swam away, though, because they started doing lethal damage. And, uh, you know, he's sentient enough to be like, I don't want to die. Well, they were just See, this on. all sounds to me, Tom, like you got a lot of enthusiasm for this game. I think I, I I don't think you should put it totally on ice. But if you need a break, maybe maybe just say I like I need some time off between sessions instead. So, uh, with Coyote's Aegis, meanwhile. Yeah. Um, I gave the party one final opportunity to gain the benefits of a short rest while taking the Bloody Fury into land. Um, and I said that uh, Hex may want to distribute some more cooking at this point, too, since they've just finished their fight on the naval front. And uh, Gent says, how are my mechs? I say, same condition as you last left them. Gent says, I order them to dance and entertain the crew while we eat and rest. And uh, Hex passes out some thermoses full of soup. He says it's an ice cold vichyssoise. Is that did I say that right? 
Yeah, we that's come up on the show before, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's so, already done that, but this time it's icy cold. You know, I do. Like, I do believe Vichy Soise is uh, icy cold, is like putting cold. an RPG on ice. That was our segue. Um, I can't remember last time we mentioned Vichy Soise. Did I talk about how I knew how to pronounce it? Like I actually can remember when I learned how to pronounce Vichyssoise. Okay, hit me with it. It's the most random thing. When I was in elementary school, uh, when you were, you're younger than I am. When you were in elementary school, did you get like scholastic book orders? That was still a Hell thing. Hell yeah. Yeah. I used to get, uh, in the scholastic book orders, they always had like 101 school jokes, 101 scary jokes. You know those kinds of books. Okay. Ah, so those were those were before your time, I guess. Just well, like Well, it it may have been there, but I didn't take any interest in it. I was too busy with the stinky cheese man and other fairly oh, yeah. stupid tales. Classics. Uh Red Letter Media actually has a video where they have one of these books, like a one hundred and one dumb joke book, exactly like the kind I'd get, and they Mike just reads Rich, all the dumb jokes. Uh, and they're all terrible. Um anyway. I remember I got a 101 Scary Jokes joke book from a Scholastic Book Order, and in it there was a dumb poem about a guy basically decomposing as he was eating dinner. And I remember because the the first little stanza of it said, my eye fell out and landed plunk into my Vichy Soise it sunk. And I remember distinctly having to ask my mom how to pronounce Vichy Soise. So there Vichy you go. Soise. Um. So, the burning wreck of the royal flagship of Agalock drifts towards the coast, driven on by the tide. As debris reaches the shore, so does the commandeered bloody fury under the party's command, backed by the might of the Draelic Navy. On land... The party is met by the surviving MPOC agents who assaulted the shore undercover, now with white bands tied over their ar- the arms of their disguises so that they are recognized as allies. These agents are led by a half-orc who salutes Connor upon their arrival. Pillar's blessings, soldier. Connor salutes back. This is a little uh, thing. This was from back when I was uh, really into like American revolutionary war uh, history and like having a white band tied over your arm was a way to designate yourself as like a British militiaman if you didn't have the new uniforms yet and you were just like basically in plain clothes you'd wear the white armband I have a model that I did like that even. So, uh, though you will not be able to identify these items until after the battle, I said, uh, the team gains some interesting finds from the flotsam and jetsam of the royal flagship. One appears to be a black iron pitchfork. Another is a small black pearl flecked with gold and set on a heavy chain of interlinked stone rings. Finally, a golden pike is retrieved from the junk that washes up on the beach. And uh, Alex says, Hex will stuff these into his bag of holding along with Dar and the awesome battle axe. Gent just says, Shiny pearls! 
I say, I almost forgot. You also have a few bits of treasure from a couple sessions ago that we plan to deal with later. A silver-clawed net and a, a golden charging bull lance. And I said, uh, I figure we can list these all as being in Hex's inventory until you have the chance to get them identified. Uh, and Though I said, technically, Gent would be the more appropriate choice of carrier, I think, since they have so many capacity-enhancing items. They have a portable hole. They have a handy haversack. They have a bag of holding. And uh, Alex is like, yeah, we could totally do that. I've just been keeping a list of the loot from this op. And I'm like, yeah, same. The black pearl on the stone chain, though, which goes into Gent's inventory, that is a specific item that I'm pretty sure is in the epic. And it's like, it's pretty cool. It's like, do you know the item, a pearl of power? Yeah, the pearl of power. Uh, God, this is another case. You always ask me about these items and I can always remember them, but then I get confused as to which magic item description matches which thing. A pearl of power, doesn't it just enhance the powers of like mage classes? It's, well, it gives spellcasters a very specific boon, which is you can regain a spell slot. Right. You activate this Pearl of Power, and it's like every long rest or something, and you just regain a spell slot, which is killer for any spell spellcaster. It's great. Um, this one is really cool in its flavoring, though. This Black Pearl of Power... Um, that I'm pretty sure appears in the uh, the the epic. Um, it has a special activation function where you have to feed it blood. Basically, you have to like bloodlet onto the onto the black pearl in order to get the activation to recharge the spell slot. So. Shortly after they step off the Bloody Fury, uh, their three Black Sabbath fighter planes arrive, piloted by a few MPOC stand-in pilots. The pilots remain in place, allowing them to hop into the passenger seat behind them and ride along to their next destination. They lift off from their landing point in a large forest clearing near the shoreline. They quickly veer into a similar clearing deeper inland. As soon as they exit, they each exit their aircraft, they immediately take off back into the sky. From the beach to the forest to back in the sky, their engines remain on. Once the fighters have departed, a voice calls out to the party from the darkness out of the forest nearby. A group of drow emerges from the shadows. Let's go, let's go, quickly now, they whisper urgently, beckoning them into the darkness of the wood. Gent follows. As they return to the familiar darkness, one of the drow says something in a hissing, whispered tongue. Moments later, dozens of sleek, ray-like creatures glide down from above and perch in the branches nearby. The drow gestured toward them. The cloakers will carry you into the underdark. Mount up and be ready to fly as soon as you're all set. Connor casts Enhance Ability Owl's Wisdom on Hexakila and Gent. Um... He does a level three spell slot so he can do two targets. Hex and Gent suddenly feel as though their senses are keener. Once they are all secure on their mounts, 
The cloakers dive from their perches and swiftly fly deep into the darkness of Agalok. Silently, they glide through the, un through the dark, swooping between sticky spider webs, giant tree trunks, and outcrops of rock. Here and there, patches of glowing fungus illuminate the gloom. You see the... Sp you see... The, they seem to be speeding into the void, the limits of their vision constantly updating with the range of their trioptics night vision. It's like driving through the forest in the middle of the night, trees whipping past through the headlights. And uh, I included Sweet a description. Video. Well, I included a uh, video to set the mood, and we'll include this in the show notes, of uh, a night ride on very fast-moving dirt bikes through a forest at night titled slipping into darkness it's like cool man fucking wildness you know what it reminds me of though what's that the video of someone riding the dirt bike in the hall in the tunnels at carlton oh yeah god you i'd forgotten all about that the university me and mcgill went to uh had tunnels under it and then uh, at some point, a video came out and some guy, I guess the tunnels were empty and some guy fucking went Bro. all crazy on him in a dirt bike. Yeah, like sped down them, too. He went really fast on that thing. And there was a whole investigation. I don't know if they ever caught the guy. Do you? I'm pretty sure they did because his like someone pointed out that like his YouTube was connected to his Facebook or something. And he was like in the <laughs> army or something. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that one. So, sharpening their senses for this was clearly a good call. Because, uh, damn. Whipping through the trees and everything like that. With a blood-curdling scream, a dark shape leaps from a rock ahead. It looks like a cross between a man and a giant vulture. And it leaves the stench of awful in its wake. Uh, the party recognizes this demon as a Vrock. You know the Vrock? Uh, they're, I mean, again, I know the name. I've totally used a Vrock. Are they the, are they red? Are they red ones? No, they're the big vulture ones. I just described big... it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to get an answer on whether they actually caught the guy. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. <laughs> I can forgive that. I've got caught on similar tangents while you were doing your thing. I don't know if they actually did catch him. I hear he was in the army. Maybe they kept it hush-hush. Maybe they recruited him for a special... <laughs> tunnel riding motorcycle division okay okay i'm done with it keep going um so i gave them some general rules to bear in mind while on their mounts um when making attacks from the back of the cloaker you must first make an acrobatics check to determine how well you can maneuver from your current position failure on this check will result in disadvantage when making this subsequent subsequent attack each cloaker takes its action on the same turn as its rider. To use its dash action, the cloaker must succeed on a dexterity check, which the player gets to make the roll. Due to the cloaker's familiarity with the environment, it makes this check with advantage. Once the cloaker is moved, its rider can take an action. 
then I had everyone roll initiative and everyone had advantage. So uh, very decent high initiative here. Hex gets 21, Connor gets 20, Gent gets 18. Um, so they start just with sort of open air ahead of them and a rock uh, 40 feet ahead of them. And on Hex's turn, he urges his cloaker to move forwards. And uh, the 40-foot fly is just enough to close the distance, basically. And uh, so Hex uses his bonus action to light up his scimitar, then begins swinging on the rock, uh, which resists fire, unfortunately. Um, but... Uh, I, I also I have them do the acrobatics check at the start of an attack sequence rather than before every attack, so uh, to see if they have disadvantage or not. So he gets a twenty-eight for acrobatics. Um, hits with his whole flurry of attacks. Um, as soon as the demon appears up ahead, Hex charges on the back of his cloaker, blade ablaze. Unfortunately, as Connor tries to dash ahead of the rock. Uh, on his acrobatics roll, or what? Sorry, not acrobatics roll, but on the dexterity roll for the cloaker, he rolls an eleven. Uh, that's a plus four with advantage. No dice. The cloaker is unable to maneuver through the trees at full speed. So Connor instead hurls a guiding bolt at the rock in frustration, and uh, gets the acrobatics check. Attacks without disadvantage. Hits the rock. Um, 12 force damage, and the next attack against the rock has advantage. Gent is next, and uh, Connor has marked the demon, granting advantage. Gent moves up to halfway and then aims with her arrow, with their arrow. Hey, man, Gent misgendered herself. Come on. <laughs> um... So, got 26 on acrobatics. Uh, and had advantage. Um, they land a shot directly in the side of the demon. The rock provokes attacks of opportunity from everyone except Connor. Uh, I just want to say, I love how just like directly they jumped into this next, this next phase. I can't, did you mention, did they rest between arenas or was it just like, here we go off from the naval battle into this? They had a short rest, I think. Short rest. That's what the ice cold vichyssoise was for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! As Hex cuts its tail feathers, turning them to cinders as they fall, and Gent fires another shot into the demon's side, the Vrock desperately darts ahead. And then Gent gets their part due turn. So we've talked about before at these high levels, the rogue gets a second turn on on a first uh, round of initiative. And uh, so they attack, and they see the demon falter in its flight somewhat as they strike its wing. As they speed through the darkened forest, chasing the Vrock, a volley of enemy arrows tears through the branches at them. Everyone must make a dex saving throw. Uh, Connor is struck by two arrows for a total of 18 piercing damage. The rest of the party is safe, although... Uh, the uh, the cloakers also take damage during the arrow volley, 
and uh so connor and gents mounts uh get hit by uh the arrow the volley of arrows as well um hex uh gets a nat 20 to uh get his mount to dash uh so naturally he succeeds hex leaps up again to harry the vrock and uh falls close behind the flying demon uh attacks without disadvantage and uh yeah just a series of big hits 19 damage after reduction uh night uh yeah 10 peers and blah just a bunch of hits uh connor tosses another guiding bolt yeah connor tosses another guiding bolt um uh but connor has disadvantage to hit the rock with his guiding bolt and misses uh Gent once again moves up uh, halfway, uh, gets advantage to attack, um, and hits, strikes the rock through the head, causing it to fall through the branches below. Out of the night-like canopy of the forest, a swarm of bats flutters through their path. Everyone must make a dexterity save. Gent has advantage. Hex gets a nat 20 for 25. Connor gets an unnatural 20. Gent gets a nat 20 for 25. Everyone deftly maneuvers around among the trees, dodging the cauldron of bats without difficulty. Hex says, wait, a cauldron? I say, isn't that the term for plurality of bats? He says, I was unaware. Gent says, OMG, is it? Amazing. I say, it seems so. Might be kind of archaic, though. Did you know that, McGill? The funny thing is I should know it because my sister researches bats see that's that is, what i thought that is her job but i've never i don't know cauldron a cauldron like, of bats like a, a c-a-u-l sometimes called a cauldron uh i didn't know that but i will get confirmation from my sister yeah um yeah so yeah dodging the cauldron of bats without difficulty and my brother's like wait a cauldron i'm like isn't that the term for a plurality of bats and everybody's like whoa cool <laughs> stuff you learn playing D. the rapid approach of a massive tree trunk forces everybody to make dexterity checks to steer out of the way luckily they were able to stay out of these stay clear of those bats or this would be a trickier check Jen has advantage. Um, Hex gets 17. Connor gets a 15. And uh, Gent gets a 9. Even with advantage. They rolled a 4 and a 1. So, wow. Ouch. <laughs> they all collide with the tree, even as their mounts bend themselves away from the trunk at the last second. The impact forces them all to make strength saves lest they be thrown from their mounts. Gent has advantage. Gent gets an 8. Connor gets a 7. Hex gets a 14. Hex manages to steel himself against the sudden shock of the impact, shaking himself into the present and gripping his mount tightly. Connor and Jet slip from their mounts. Their hearts seem to stop for a moment as they begin their descent into the darkness below. Scrambling, they manage to seize a branch in desperation. 
leaving them hanging in place until their mount or an ally can assist them. Uh, Connor immediately tries to coax his mount back with an animal handling check. I say, sure. Uh, Gent just curses in Kenku. Uh, Alex says, 22 for an animal handling. Truly the greatest skill. And I say, what does Connor say or do to coax the cloaker? And Alex says, uh, I'm assuming these things kind of chirp. So he's going to make some chirping slash clicking sounds. Maybe snap his fingers a bunch. I say, does anyone here speak deep speech or undercommon? He says, do a little pss, 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 pss. Not Kex or Connor. And Gent says, I don't have either, I don't think. And I say, everyone roll insight. And uh, Alex says, with advantage for enhanceability. And I say, right. So Gent gets 21, Hex gets 21, Connor gets 26. The cloakers are definitely communicating with each other. You can't be sure, but your read of this scene is generally Connor and Gent fell, Gent cursed, Jet's cloaker laughed at that, then Connor tried to coax his mount, and both his cloaker and Gent's thought that this was hilarious, but then Hex's cloaker, the one that is currently in the lead and uninjured, pulled rank with a gruff tone, making the other two cloakers straighten up, returning to Gent and Connor to pick them up again. Connor gets the sense that they're trying to downplay their apparent intelligence when they return to their roles as mounts. Gent is like, hmm, should have brought snacks. And Alex says, Connor pulls out a carrot and offers it to his mount. Connor's accepts the carrot. I say, basically, your mounts just laughed at the pratfall until the lead mount told them to straighten up, at which point they all went back to acting like simple mounts. <laughs> uh, I've, I've oh. got, I've got uh, confirmation on a cauldron of bats. Uh, so here's the exchange with my sister. I said, can you confirm or deny that a plurality of bats is called a cauldron? She said, there are all sorts of words for a plurality of bats. I don't think any of them are wrong. But bat biologists use swarm if they're flying and roost or colony if they're roosting. I think someone once told me that a cloud of bats was listed somewhere. I feel like it's a bat fun fact trivia question that pops up occasionally. So there you go. Neat. I mean, I've I've heard it before, and it's just stuck in my head. I guess the the uh, the official ver I like a cloud of bats though as an official term. Man, you don't like cauldron? I mean, cauldrons cauldron is also dope. It's but so I just, spooky. I just like that cloud is like an official term. You wouldn't say like a cloud of birds. Feels like it's more <laughs> metaphorical, right? Ah, a cloud! It's coming. He summoned uh, a cloud of bats. So, a sudden updraft raises the group all 20 feet from their previous positions. Their ears are suddenly assailed by a cacophony of incomprehensible whispers. And all make wisdom saving throws with advantage. Jenk uh, gets an unnatural 20, Connor gets a 23, and Hex gets a 19. A thick tangle of branches is rapidly approaching up ahead. Each of them must make dexterity saving throws to avoid being caught in the branches. Jent has advantage. Uh, Hex burns his last use of Indomitable to get a 23. Connor gets a nat 1. And Gent gets a 24. 
While focusing on pushing, pushing the maddening whispers from his mind, Connor realizes too late that the unexplained updraft has diverted his course just enough to send him into the thick tangle of branches up ahead and above him. Both he and his cloaker become caught in the canopy of the forest, struggling to regain mobility. Two shapes drop out of the shadowy branches above them, one small and one large. As the small one approaches, uh, Connor recognizes at a, it as a dark mantle, a small fl flying predator that attempts to latch onto the head of its prey. The larger shape turns out to be a giant spider, also hoping to catch a meal as they speed through its domain. Uh, it seems that Connor has just landed on the menu. And uh, that is where we actually broke for this session. Uh, but I figure we can keep on going until they finish their little uh, trip through uh, Egglock on Cloakerback. So when we left off, uh, they'd been zipping through the forest on Egglock on of Egglock on Cloakerback Initially confronted by a vrock, but after catching up and slaying it, they they had a clearer path, except for the bizarre features of the forest, of course. They just reached a thick patch of tangled vines, which Hex and Gent managed to navigate their way through, but Connor got stuck. And Gent says, classic Connor. As it turns out, this tangle of branches happens to be the home to a pair of predators, a dark mantle, which is a type of creature that envelops the head of its prey when attacking, and a giant spider. Seems Connor has fallen into their trap. So we roll initiative. And I say a dark mantle is kind of like a weird flying black jellyfish. And uh, my brother included a picture uh, from the monster manual and said, Scree! Uh, you know dark mantles, right? Yeah, they're like squids, like flying octopus things. I mean, uh, I can uh, include the picture that my brother showed over the Yeah, yeah, notes. that's the one. Uh, the giant spider comes down on Connor and bites him while he's restrained, though his cloak saves him from a critical hit. Uh, he must make a constitution saving throw. Connor takes 15 piercing damage as the spider bites into his left foot. Connor takes 11 poison damage, his system fighting off half of it. Um, and then Hex checks over his shoulder, noticing something's gone wrong. He whips out a Hercules frag grenade into the ambush. Uh, and then he says, ah, I've misremembered the explosive radius. I say, yeah, this would be very close quarters for a grenade. He says, in that case, he'll take a few shots over his shoulder at the dark mantle. Uh, he gets a big hit, blasting the dark mantle as soon as it appears. Uh, Hex shoots the dark mantle out of the air. He says, oh, oh neat. That's great, because according to this, my revolver is in currently in need of re reloading. I say, good thing. So, cuts over to Gent, and... Uh, Gent says, I aim at my mortal enemy, spiders. And uh, they roll with advantage. Um, and they hit. Gent shoots the spider right out of the trees. It falls into the darkness. Uh, all targets are dead now. Connor just needs to take an action to try and free himself. And uh, he... Rolls athletics, uh, and with the help of the equally frustrated cloaker, oh right, he uses the he 
has the cloaker uh, use its action to help him and gets a 21 dodging a nat one. Uh, and with the help of the equally frustrated cloaker, Connor manages to break free from the tangle of branches, restraining him and his mount. Everyone gains 300 XP. Their new total is 348,700. As they continue their way to the Underdark Passage, they notice something up ahead. Visibility in the distance becomes hazy through their trioptics, suggesting some sort of particulate or interference in the air. Everyone must make a nature check. Gent has advantage, gets a 23. Uh, Hex gets 18. Connor gets 17. And uh, while Hex and Gent successfully identify the cloud of poisonous spores and their nature allowing them to maneuver out of the way. Connor doesn't and mistakes and makes the mistake of trying to fly over, which causes the spores to rush toward him in an updraft. Connor takes 25 poison damage. Gent says, wow. Alex says, Jesus, Connor. Uh, the rest of their passage through the upper reaches of the forest is remarkably clear, allowing them to speed toward their destination. Even without the presence of hostile predators and demons, the chasm providing entry to the Underdark is tricky to spot. Everyone must make a perception and investigation checks with advantage, as well as nature and survival checks without advantage. Jen actually makes the nature and survival checks with advantage, though. So there's a whole bunch of rules. Connor and Gent slow their mounts as they glide over a massive dark tangle of brambles, scanning the twisted vegetation for gaps that might open the way to an underdark passage. Hex keeps speeding along, looking down and zooming in with his trioptics to scout out the way. Connor follows as Gent begins to descend, having noticed a parting in the entanglement, and Hex follows close behind. The cloakers guide the group down into the heavily overgrown area. Evidently, the Underdark Passage has remained concealed by way of heavy underbrush in this area of the forest surrounding it. The cloakers descend and settle themselves over a patch of lichen-covered lichen rock nearby, or lichen-covered rock nearby, giving them... You say that lichen or lichen? It's lichen, isn't it? I've always said it lichen, but I, I've heard lichen... And I've heard it enough that I kind of, it makes me doubt my own pronunciation. It's I lichen. always, it's lichen. Giving you a landing platform of sorts to dismount onto. So there's this nice lichen covered rock that they can hop off the cloakers and onto. Um, Jen says, I feel like someone needs an antidote. And I say, uh, well, thankfully, Hex wears a preoptive proof against poison, which grants him immunity, and Gent's belt of dwarven kind grants them a resistance against poison. And uh, Hex hops off. Connor dismounts as gracefully as possible. After dismounting, they proceed down off the lichen, the lichen-covered rock. As they step off the rock, however, their footfalls trigger a burst of spores from below. Everyone must make a con-saving throw with advantage from their rebreathers. Gent says, you tricky fucker, or rather Chantel says. <laughs> and uh, Alex says, never safe in the Underdark, I say, or Agalok for that matter. Gent gets an unpleasant acrid smell in her rebreather that lingers for a bit, but is safe otherwise. As they make their way toward the brambles covering the Underdark passage, Gent suddenly becomes aware of a writhing tangle of tendrils reaching out from underfoot. Everyone with roll initiative. Um, so Hex goes first. Hex pulls out his scimitar, 
um, and uh, lights it up and jumps at the strange ropey creature with reckless attacks. Uh, he also mentions, this is something, his scimitar has this ability where it can find the nearest Underdark exit. Uh, it, like, uh, lets him know the location of it, but or, like, the direction of it. But I point out that they are not actually in the Underdark yet. They're still on the forest floor. But, um... They hit the tang the tangle of tendrils and it writhes and screeches, uh, attacking with their flaming crucifix scimitar. Uh, the second strike kills it, and uh, so two hit kill. Uh, Jen says, "Holy shit!" Connor rolls insight on the cloakers, and I say, "Is there anything he's specifically trying to figure out?" They seem like they're remaining in place until you find and enter the passage, at which, at which point they'll probably take off. And uh, Alex says, they aren't visibly giggling at, about dropping us off in, on top of a trap in front of another. Connor shoots them a suspicious side eye. I say, no, they aren't really watching you guys, it doesn't seem. Just waiting around in case you decide to mount up again. Like if this turns out to be the wrong spot or something. Their, uh, their ongoing suspicion of these cloakers' intelligence and ulterior motives uh, really is reminding me a lot of Baldur's Gate 3, because I'm playing a druid, and uh, after you told me that there were all the... You could talk to all the animals, and they all had, like, these, these dialogues and things, I've just been talking to all the animals that I come across, and I keep thinking, like, hmm, if only there was some way for these folks to actually, like, directly communicate with the cloakers. Maybe well, the they wouldn't be is, so suspicious. The thing is, I asked them earlier if they spoke under common or deep speech, I think, which I think implies that maybe cloakers speak those languages. Yeah. Like, um... Yeah, languages, deep speech, and undercommon. Undercommon. I mean, come on, undercommon is not. It's it's just as good as common, depending their, on where uh, you are. Their intelligence is thirteen plus one. Anyway, just, just talk to them. <laughs> Connor grunts and turns back to the opening in the vegetation, and. Uh, when navigating the brambles, Connor and Gent must make constitution saves. Gent makes this save with advantage and gets an 11. Uh, says, boo. Connor gets a nat one. Double boo. Gent and Connor are pricked a couple times as they push through the brambles, taking 22 poison damage from the virulent flora of Egalok's floor. Gent resists this through their belt of dwarven kind, taking 11 poison instead. Everyone must make a dexterity saving throw. And Gent says 11. And I say, now Gent has plus 11 on dex saves. So I'm pretty sure you didn't roll a zero. <laughs> and Gent laughs and says, I have been hitting the wrong button this whole time tonight. And I say, Dangus, Mangus. <laughs> okay, dex was 17. Con was same as the before. I say, well, the dex was much better. I say, okay, wondering how Gent, yeah, I was wondering how Gent fucked that up. Uh, Hex gets an 18, and Connor gets a nat one again. And I say, oh, man, poor Connor. Connor, the footing is extremely treacherous as you descend into the passage, and a loose rock quickly sends you falling face first into a patch of brambles. You manage to catch yourself, but as you do, you twist your ankle while trying to steady yourself. 
until your next rest, you move at half speed, and you have to have disadvantage on dexterity checks and saves. Uh, Alex says, yeesh, could a greater restoration fix that? I say, I don't think so. And he says, okay, regardless, Connor will have to cast heal on himself at level 7. I say, Connor calls upon Paylor for healing as he descends into the darkness. They reach the bottom of the chasm where a drow in body armor is waiting. They carry a shield in one hand and a dark gun, likely stolen from Agalok's defenders, in the other. They also have a huge sword on their back, possibly an executioner's sword. They're standing at the mouth of a cavern which continues from the bottom of the chasm. You made it, they say flatly upon seeing you. Oh. You, must be our, you must be our guide. Let's get on with it, Hex offers them a quick salute. Connor grumbles and rubs his ankle. The drow nods, gesturing towards the cavern. Um, so the guide takes the lead. Connor goes second. Um, Gent goes after Connor, and Hex takes, takes up the rear. Glowing moss casts dim light throughout the cavern. The floor is uneven stone. Initially, the cavern widens, creating an alcove of sorts on either side before narrowing, then widening again to open into a wider grotto lit by eerie green radiance. The ceiling of the cavern is initially about 15 feet overhead, but the floor of the cavern drops off into the grotto area. Small ramps on either side of the drop lead downward. You can see a similar ledge on with ramps on either side across from the first. And uh, Gent says, I would like to keep an eye open upwards. The drow proceeds past the two small alcoves to either side to the narrow gap up ahead. And uh, everyone is following behind. And uh, Gent's watching the ceiling. Moist toadstools sprout from within the eastern alcove. Weeping pustules cover their orange Ew. heads. And they... <laughs> A uh, stink of rotten flesh. As you move further into the cavern, a cloud of spores drifts into your path from the alcove. Everyone must make a nature check. Uh, the guide tries to blow air at the spores to drive them away, but he is unsuccessful. He curses in drow as the spores envelop the group, settling on them like snowflakes. Careful, these things sicken to the touch. Gent has already recognized the nature of the spores after identifying the toadstools due to her college studies and has gone prone when the cloud hits the group. Hex and Connor must make constitution saving throws. Gent says, let this be a lesson. Don't drop out of school. Hex gets an unnatural 20. Connor gets a 16. Connor and Hex quickly heed the words of the guide, ensuring the spores don't settle on any exposed flesh. Unfortunately, the drow is distracted in warning the group and ends up speckled with the stuff. He coughs and spits, taking a cloth and wiping off some of the spores. Gent pats his back. Watch your hand, he says quietly. The western alcove from the cavern entrance features a cluster of glowing purple crystals. Crumbled pieces and broken shards of these crystals cover the floor of the cavern around them, implying they are somewhat fragile. Everyone may roll Arcana with advantage. Gent gets 17, Hex gets 13, and Connor gets 11. Gent identifies these crystals as being the same ones they've been seeing in their missions recently. The samples they've retrieved for Rin, the statue that the stone giants were obsessed with, that crystal. However, their brittle, dusty state in the cluster here implies that these ones are inert in some way. A sample might be useful to the Empok, 
It would be best to carry such a sample in a bag of holding or similar container, though, as the fragility would pose issues to carrying on your person. Got a sample, reaches into a pocket full of shiny purple dust. Oh, whoops. <laughs> um, so, Gent mentions that, and Hex uh, puts a sample into his bag of holding. Um, uh, Gent says, I'm not going to show my new golems, though. Gent remembers the insanity of the machines last time. As they approach the grotto, they realize that the ledge and the ramps on either side only descend about 15 feet, with the floor of the cavern rising back up on the other side, which also features a drop-off with small ramps on either side. In the middle of the sunken part of the cavern floor lies a wide pool that appears to be about 20 feet deep. Smaller caves strike off to the west and east of the pool. And I ask, what would you guys like to check out? Connor says to the guide, hey, any good fishing down here? Or do you... Or do the fish catch you in the underdark? He gives a nervous laugh. And I say, uh, oh, sorry, I forgot to say, there's a large door set in the wall on the far side of the pool. The uh, Gent laughs at uh, Connor's awkward joke. Then Gent awkwardly laughs super loud and call like they like that one. <laughs> the drown narrows his eyes at the pool. Might be just what we need. He proceeds to the ramp heading down, coughing. Damn to toadstools. My people use them to make Dream Whisper, a powerful soporific. Uh, one drop can send a legion to sleep. In their natural state, though, he lets out a hacking cough. I should be fine in a minute, but this pool might... He stops looking out past the pool toward the cave entrance to the east. He puts up a finger up to his lips and points. Suddenly... The group sees figures emerging from the cave. A robed drow strides out with a squad of 12 warriors following behind. Their skin stretches tight over their bones. A blue fire burns in their eyes. The robed one is just hissing something to his warriors as he exits the cave. He said they'll toast their vengeance with demon blood. The, the guide quickly translates. He whispers it sharply and swiftly, just in time to get it out before they're spotted. The drow frees that they realize the group's presence in the cavern with them there's a brief silence between their two groups as the drow who all appear to be undead hold their weapons close gent says surprise the apparent leader narrows his eyes at her connor puts a hand on the rod of rulership he took from the armory then sighs and lets it go we wish to pass through these caverns we mean you no harm gent says i'm sorry i can't deny a good one-liner the leader of the undead drow clicks his tongue. And what is your purpose here? Connor may roll persuasion or deception if he does mean them harm. He rolls 12 persuasion. He says, I told you, we mean to pass through. And what use do you have for demon blood exactly? The drow scowls. There's no place. This is no place for a peaceful mission. I suggest your more, you mortals turn back. The other drow hold their weapons at the ready. Hex pipes up. Our mission isn't peaceful, and this place is not our goal. We are headed to wage war against the Agalachian humans. Step aside or die. A second time, I suppose. The guide leans to whisper to the rest of the group and uh, says, He's not with the resistance. He's one of the death cultists. Gent makes a noise that sounds like dark mantles. The drow hisses, Silence, mortals! Even in death I have not time for this. He and his allies prepare for battle. 
And that is where we broke. Oh, what a cliffhanger. They are in an underdark cavern across a, a pool in a grotto from a group of undead drow undead a group of drow, uh, drow undead warriors led by some like main undead guy and to clarify this isn't yet the next theater this is sort of in between this is this is part of the next theater okay yeah cool big confrontation i like it yeah well We've had trouble with these uh, death cultist drow before. That was a neat one. I liked the, I mean, all the the cloaker riding had a, a sort of a Return of the Jedi speeder bike vibe to some of it. Yeah, totally. But in the dark, in the darkness of Agalok. Mm-hmm. So one more theater. It, it's kind of amazing too. Like uh, you got the the air combat based theater done in what two sessions, right? Um, I'm I don't know. Because you you broke in the middle of this one. Well, keep in mind, keep in mind. Actually, I was covering two sessions here, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, you got end-to-end -end for the air combat theater in two sessions. Yeah, uh, sorry, I guess the part where they're on cloakers, if you're counting that specifically as the... No, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm making a new point, which is uh, interesting how quickly that went compared to the naval one. Yeah, but I think that, like, this part in the Underdark also has to be included with the part with the cloakers if you're going to compare it to the naval one. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I I don't know what comes next. Yeah. It's mostly just uh trying to find the uh passage into to get sort of behind enemy lines in the mantle. Mhm. Mm hook up with their allies who will give them giant spider mounts. This is another That's great. part from the from the third uh, part of uh, the epic blood as, above blood below as a player I feel like I might be sad to uh, to leave behind all of these different methods of transportation didn't have much of a choice with uh, frisky dingo well true <laughs> I'd still I'd still be sad about that though and then I gotta leave behind the cloaker yeah well it's, uh, it's it's rapid uh, rapid warfare. You gotta you gotta move move move. So your side of the podcast. Yeah, let's talk about some RPG uh, crowdfunding campaigns that are that are on right now. Uh, I'm just looking here. Yeah, the these all still have uh, still have, uh, still have a while to go. And uh, it's not too late to get in on them if you want. Oh, I guess I guess one of them is, is technically funded. But uh, first up, 
I wanted to talk about one that is not part of the Zine RPG Month stuff. Uh, it's just it popped up in my feed today, and I loved how it looked and what it sounded like. Let me send you a link. It's an RPG called Little Wolves, A Realm of Folk and Fae. And uh, they haven't even launched their campaign yet. Right now they're they're on backer kit and they've basically made the call to action saying like, sign up and we'll email you updates about the campaign when it launches. And the premise of this is that it's uh, it's a like folkloric folktale werewolf fairy themed RPG uh, for three or more players and a GM and the players play shapeshifters exploring a forest filled with magic and mystery completing quests and favors for their queens and the denizens of their fairy courts uh and the thing that i loved about this not only are the sort of prototype images on their campaign page uh very nice it looks like a really nice book but it has this added component where the players uh, make wolf masks that they wear when they shapeshift, and then they also decorate their masks to reflect the game that they're playing, to reflect the lessons they learn, experiences they share, and stories they create together. Um, so, like, here's a little blurb from the Backer Kit announcement. The story of Little Wolves has much to tell. Soon you'll hear about what it means to be a werewolf, the masks you'll make at the table, and how they help you transform the mysterious queens and their relationship to the enchanted forest, the denizens and folklings of the wondrous woods, the elements and how they're used. Um, so this is all very, very early days, but right away it just jumped out at me, this fun idea that you make a wolf mask for when you're playing at the table. And when you transform, you put on your wolf mask. And uh, it seems like the kind of thing that is getting more and more popular, this idea of an RPG where you come away with like an artifact of the game. Uh, and sometimes those are those uh, artifacts are like the main game board. Like I know uh, for Christmas one year, I got Caitlin uh, a storytelling game, kind of an RPG uh, that comes with a big map. But the idea is that you stitch colored like yarn into it to track your progress. And uh, so you can create this cool sort of map while you do it. I've also seen a, a sort of a murder mystery game where uh, as you play it, you make a quilt. And uh, so I just I thought this was a neat RPG version of that kind of game where the players build like the masks are sort of part of their character sheet and they make them at the start and then they decorate them as different thing happen things happen in the game. I don't know, Tom, what do you think of this? It's all still very early days, but but I like where it's going. I feel like, I don't know, There there's something about these types of games that feels kind of gimmicky to me. And like, I mean, it is definitely a it's, gimmick. It's not terribly offensive to me, but I think that there are some people who really go for this type of thing and then... For those people, like, out of the things that those people would have me play, this seems, like, pretty manageable. Pretty, like, yeah, I could see myself doing this. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. 
it does have sort of like a like a light a lightweight quality to it, which isn't to say that yeah, I think it's going to be short on rules or anything like that, but it's it's really easy to understand and the 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 arts and crafts side of it uh it doesn't seem like super complex. It seems like a very manageable thing that people with all degrees of artistic talent would be able to take part in. And I bet that the final product is going to have like print out, cut out wolf mask templates too to help facilitate that process. Uh, so that one is, uh, that one's Little Wolves, A Realm of Folk and Fae. And you can look it up on Backerkit, of course, on our WordPress. I'll put a link to it, but the, the URL is, is too long and full of numbers and letters uh, to make it worth uh, saying out on the podcast. Here's one from the Zine RPG Month Festival. Uh, it's on Kickstarter, and it's a game called I Crave the Loop. And this is uh, like a mini RPG, a snack time roguelike RPG, it's called, uh, that is designed for one or two players, and it's designed to be played uh, very quickly, basically in the time it takes you to eat a snack. Um, before I talk about the RPG itself, I'll just give some, some discussion here. Uh, it has been funded, but it still has 27 days to go on its campaign. So if you want to get in on the Kickstarter, you can find it uh, and still back it and get your, your rewards. And uh, it's created by Jonathan Boyle, a game writer and editor. And the idea behind I Crave the Loop is that it's this fast-paced roguelike RPG about eating a snack before a ghost or otherworldly monster uh, catches you and devours the snack. Fast play, fast play sessions with a real-life snack as the game clock. So what you do is when you sit down for a snack, you portion it out, or you can use a set of tokens to represent the different pieces. Then you roll on a list of character origins and maps to determine your starting bonuses and playing field. Then you take a bite of your snack, and one of several possible creatures emerges from hiding and begins the chase. Then each round you either feast or flee. If you feast, you can get a burst of the zoomies to help you escape the creature, uh, and every item you find offers new advantages. Here's an example. It says, a simple spoon might help you feast more effectively, while a platoon of army guys in the basement might do battle with the creature to slow it down. And the idea is you want to eat your whole snack before the creature catches up to you and eats your snack instead. Uh, and if the creature catches you, it devours your snack, but uh, and the chase begins anew uh, with all your collected items the next time you open the fridge. So it's it has that carryover roguelike quality. You can track your character on the sheet. And then there is also duet mode, which is the one for two players, where the other player plays as the creature after your snack, which is pretty funny if you think about it, because that means you got, you know, your friend playing with you and they're they're eating your snack. Dang it. So this uh, is just like a little, little mini one here and you use a snack as a game clock. You like snacks, Tom. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'd rather just eat my snack. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Yeah. I, I, this is another one where I actually find the gimmick pretty charming. I like the idea of, like, 
breaking up a cookie into different parts and then you, you eat the cookie and you play a little bit of your game and you take another bite of the cookie and play a little bit of your game and uh the the printing looks pretty nice i like the the imagery in this campaign um and uh it's it's funded guys there's there's really no downside here. It's, uh, it's 10 bucks to get the digital print-and-play copy of I Crave the Loop. All right, Tom. Maybe this one will be more your speed. Uh, I know you like wicked ones. I know you like sort of sketchy, punky, heavy metal artwork. Well, what about the average trooper skeleton mayhem? Um, this one, uh, looks like it has been funded. Yeah, this one's been funded, but it is still there. You can still find it on Kickstarter and find out all about it. And this one, uh, the art is the main thing that drew me to it. It's got this really great, like, sketchbook, highlighters and markers quality to it. Uh, really, really sketchy, jagged edge, you know, drawings. Uh, and the gameplay is a lot like Wicked Ones. The idea being that you pick one of four skeleton archetypes, the servant, the beast, the abomination, or the construct, and you roll up a dungeon together, and you are playing as the, like, the, the skeletons in a dungeon crawl. Uh, have you ever wondered what's going on in the dungeon and, uh, when the shiny heroes are at rest? What does the average skeleton trooper do? Uh, brace yourself, trooper. It's time for a real adventure. So, yeah, that's that's the premise. But uh, also, I should note that uh, this is a, U a Ukrainian project. So I, I feel like the translation in the kick the Kickstarter campaign is a little imperfect. Uh, you'll forgive me if I have to sort of pause to parse what the intent is behind some of these things. But, uh, yeah, it's described as a skeleton punk role-playing game that places a huge emphasis on telling a self-generated dungeon crawl and a journey of changes that will have you laughing your ass off and spilling a minimum of one drink per session on yourself or your playmate. It uses a simple roll-against-yourself 2d20 system. They don't explain what that is in the, uh, in the Kickstarter campaign, but I'm intrigued. Agro dice and Jinx dice, a fun system to jump into with beer and pretzels. Don't overcomplicate it and roll with that mindset. So it's definitely designed to be sort of like not too serious, easy to pick up, easy to start playing uh, if, you're if you're feeling kind of rowdy with a group of friends. We wanted you to get started with the game fast, so we built a skeleton sheet with one roll dynamic, roll those dice, there you have it, all your stats and feats. You can roll your skeleton anywhere, all you have to do is draw a pentagram or use our pre-drawn and some neon markers and you're ready to start. Now this, again, the, I said the art is the thing that drew me to the average trooper skeleton mayhem. Uh, if you look at the pentagram generator mock-up, the little pamphlet that uh, you roll on and it just sort of generates everything you need, I love how that looks. It looks really cool. You seeing this, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of the artwork on this? It's cool. The main source book uh, is called uh, what? The Nasty Hero Book, the Nasty Hero Manual. 
There, are, it looks like it's full of Mork Borg esque artwork, but perhaps, uh, perhaps I don't know. It, it's hard to say yet if uh, it's as muddled at a glance as Mork Borg would be. But again, just love love the look of it. Skeleton stats are Wiggle Bones, Spirit Dungeon, and Rot. Uh, can't read in the small the small photos what they mean. Looks like we've got some some nasty heroes uh, who are going to turn up and invade the dungeon. Lots of cool little freebies like pins. Yeah. So uh, what what about this one, Tom? Does this appeal to you? Would you play this sooner than Mork Borg? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, but I don't know. It's it's still not. It's still not enough that I'm like, oh, I want to rush out and play this. You wouldn't back any of these campaigns that we've talked about yet. No, I don't think so. That's fair. Um, more and more, I'm finding that I'm really just drawn to to RPGs that have fun art like that. Even if I, I think it's because I know I'm never actually going to play most of them. I don't have time to run like a zillion different games. Uh, I'd be I'd be running like a hundred games if I ran a game of every RPG book I I grabbed and took a look at, because uh, there are so many good products out there. So this one, like I I cannot speak to whether this would be a good game, but boy, I really like I'd I'd buy a shirt with that punk rock skeleton with an arrow in his eye on it. That looks great. I think that's really cool. Um, all right, and I'll talk about one last one here, another one that is on Kickstarter as part of uh, Zine RPG Month, and this is called Groton. G-R-O-T-T-E-N, uh, Groton, one bit deeper. Descend one bit deeper into Groton, a minimalistic old-school tile-based dungeon crawl TTRPG can be played solo co-op with or without a GM, a one-bit dark fantasy setting. Uh, it's been funded, and there's still a week to go on this, so you can get in on the Kickstarter as well. Um, this one is basically just designed to be minimalist, and easy to pick up. You roll on random tables to uh, you, you generate, you explore a dungeon, roll random tables to fill the rooms with monsters, trap, loot, NPCs, and a final epic boss fight. Uh, the zine contains one-page rules and character creation, cut-out dungeon tiles and tokens, and lots of random tables, perfect for solo play co-op with or without a GM. Uh, it uses regular role-playing dice, Characters are built with four stats. A d20 is used to resolve tasks in combat. There is a simple level up system that makes your character better each time you defeat a boss. No prep needed. Plug and play. Super quick and easy to get playing, even at a pub or at a party where concentration and commitment might not be the highest level. Um, you flip over a, a tile, you place a character token on it. Each exit from this tile, you put down another face-down tile, flip the tile on the path you choose, move your character there, roll again, consult the appropriate table, uh, fight the monster, talk to the NPC, loot the room. After, after this, continue. Put down new tiles on all exits and move on. Um, 
You can play the game solo as every encounter can be solved with dice rolls. You can play it together with your friends. You can play with a game master, becoming more of a classic role-playing dungeon crawl. Uh, you can use it as a tool to design a dungeon. And of course, compatible with Mork Borg. <laughs> Uh, it says your many mechanics inspired by Mork Borg. All the stats and mechanics can be used uh, without any tweaking. You could even use the Mork Borg character generator and then put your Mork Borg character through Groton. And like so many of these, like I just mentioned with uh, Skeleton Trooper, just or Skeleton Mayhem rather. I just love the design on this one. It's one bit dark fantasy, so it is black and white pixel art that uh, looks like a very, very retro video game. Uh, I love I love how that looks. I really, really dig this. I like how each bullet point, even on the Kickstarter, is like a gradient of dots like you'd find in, you know, the ancient version of uh, of Windows Paint. And uh, yeah, it looks like the physical product is going to come with all sorts of great uh, NPC tokens and, uh, and map tokens and everything. And uh, you can also get the digital version that you can just print it all out yourself. And uh, yeah, I, I thought this, is, once again, I think, this is, I think this is a neat one. This might be the one that I, that I grab soonest, actually. I, I really like... Uh, Really like the the one bit look, and uh, I dig the dungeon crawl. It reminds me a lot of the solo dungeon crawl card game I have called Tin Helm. Oh yeah. But did this one tickle Tom's fancy? It looks cool, but uh, <laughs> but not no, really. Not no. really. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, should I do one more? Go for it. All right, I'm gonna do one that just launched their campaign. Um, it has 22 days to go, and uh, normally. I would say this is going to be the one that Tom will get behind. But maybe, maybe you've already had this itch scratched recently. It is Metal Gods of the Apocalypse. Tabletop RPG campaign mini setting that puts you behind the wheel of demon slaying dust buskers who pray to the carburetor god. This system agnostic campaign kit contains a gazetteer, uh, random loot tables, monster generators, lists of rumors and plot hooks, random encounter tables, and dozen more tools to craft an unforgettable campaign for you and your group. So this is a, a setting that is rules agnostic, so you could plug this into whatever system you like. And it looks sort of like Mad Max meets Brutal Legend, something like that, maybe? Uh, maybe I, I was, my instinct with Metal Gods of the Apocalypse and that cover art was like, well, is this maybe a little bit like, uh, Magna Gothica Malagas? But no, I don't think it is. I think this is like, like heavy metal zombie Mad Max. Um, most of this campaign is just talking about like what funding means, the different, uh, the different milestones for, you know, if I make this much, 
uh, we'll add that much to the we'll add that to the campaign or, you know, where is your money going and the, the full breakdown. Um, so I will just I'm going to read this little paragraph uh, about the plot, because that is basically that's most of what we got besides a pretty fun piece of cover art where it's like a. I guess this is that guy a zombie. He kind of looks like a zombie, but he could just be sort of like a like a freakish guy. Uh, he's he's playing an axe shaped guitar, an axe uh, on standing on the hood of a Mad Max style armored, you know, Corvette looking car, and uh, he's holding in the other hand a severed head, and it says here. Ereshkigal, queen of the Sumerian underworld, erupted into our world, and the bards sent to stop her failed. As punishment, Ereshkigal condemned them to each rule a domain in what was left of their world. In the aftermath of this demonic apocalypse rose you, slayers of demons, heralds of the power of metal, the key to banishing the hordes of Kur back to where they came from. So like I said, I feel like... Like, this might be, under different circumstances, a, a slam-dunk thing to get Tom interested, but, you know, maybe something like Magda Gothka Malagast or, or, you know, any number of other sort of heavy metal-themed RPGs, Mork Borg or Gozer, uh, maybe those things have already scratched this kind of itch. Just reminds me of that, uh, that new game, Gods of Metal Ragnarok. Oh, yes, that's right. And we've mentioned that before. Yeah, still haven't checked that out, but uh, yeah, I'd I'd like to, man, I'd like to. But did, does this one pique your interest? Is this a campaign you would fund, uh, even at the lowest level of twelve dollars to get a digital copy of it? Uh. No. <laughs> Wait, what? Sorry? Would you fund Metal Gods of the Apocalypse? That's sort of the uh, the metric we've been using to gauge your interest but on all these. It's not really fair because I, I very rarely fund Kickstarters or anything, you know? Well, I mean, okay, okay. Does does this interest you is the better question then. It's a bit of a neat idea, but I think I've already got enough like campaign content that I don't need to get into more... You know? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's what I was thinking. And also, uh, I do feel like like heavy metal, Mad Max, zombie apocalypse. I do feel like there, there are other games that do explore that idea, too. So, you know, maybe there are other ways to, to scratch this particular itch. And uh, you're all full up for campaign material. So, um, and I will say this one, this is the one where I, I was... I'm I'm intrigued to see what comes out of it, but it's a very bare bones Kickstarter campaign. Anyway, those are some some RPG uh, RPGs being crowdfunded right now, uh, several of which are part of the Zine RPG Month coverage that will continue uh, on at least one more episode in February. I'll probably talk more about like the best of inevitably at the end of February the. Sites like Dicebreaker do a big best of roundup of their favorites. Um, so I'll probably call, uh, cover that as well. Which one of these would I... I think I'd fund Groton first. 
if I was going to get in on these, Groton and I Crave the Loop are the two that I like the most. Really? Yeah. Snack, snack RPG, one-bit dungeon crawler. I guess, I don't know, maybe... Maybe if I had the chance to, like, really look at uh, the metal one and, like, dig into it, maybe maybe I'd like it enough that, like, that would be the one that most appeals to me. But Groton is kind of cool, too, so I don't know. And that's all I got. I mean, it's not all I got, but that's all I got for now. Um, okay, uh, so I guess that's our episode. So, uh, if you want to see when we post new episodes, uh, get in touch with us or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. And hey, why don't you get in touch with us? If anybody's listening, shoot us a message. If you got questions, anything like that, let us know you're out there. Um... Uh, meanwhile, we've got the show notes and supplemental materials up on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. So, uh, check that out for things like a video of, uh, bikes going real fast through the dark and stuff. Yeah. And that guy driving down the tunnels under Carlton university. Yeah. Are we going to include that? I guess so. Oh, well, we gotta, we have to, we have no choice. Uh, who, who rode through the tunnels on a dirt bike? Not me. I thought it was you, Tom. No. Uh, level up your Kickstarter campaign by pledging to a fun RPG, I guess. Level up and get that snack. Take care, everybody.